and Radio Derb is on the air. Greetings once again, listeners. This is, of course, your indulgently genial host, John Derbyshire. Before proceeding, I should explain the intro music that you just heard. When signing off three podcasts ago, I mentioned that in among my email I get frequent requests to feature some one particular musical instrument in the sign-out music. In response to one such request, I thereupon signed off with some ukulele music. This week I shall indulge a different listener. He requested some tuba music, and he recommended Dmitry Shostakovich's second waltz for that purpose. Well, there you are, sir. A snippet of that work, played by the Johann Strauss Orchestra. I'm afraid I don't know the name of the tubist. I shall have more tuba music for you at sign-off. Be patient, please. First, some commentary on the news. Eight months ago, which of course means long before the raid on Mar-a-Lago, Rasmussen polled a thousand likely voters with this question. Do you agree or disagree with this statement? There is a group of politicised thugs at the top of the FBI who are using the FBI as Joe Biden's personal Gestapo. That was the question. 29% of those likely voters strongly agreed. Another 17% somewhat agreed. That's an aggregate 46% agreeing. Close to half. If Rasmussen were to repeat that poll today, after the Mar-a-Lago raid, I bet it would be more than half. How did the FBI go from being stalwart defenders of the American way against organised crime and foreign espionage to having half the voting public seeing them as the president's personal Gestapo. Well, the slide has been going on for some decades. But one event that mightily accelerated the slide happened 30 years ago this week. That was the siege of Ruby Ridge in the mountains of upcountry Idaho. The target of the siege was 44-year-old Randy Weaver, an eccentric but perfectly harmless citizen who held survivalist and white separatist beliefs. Those beliefs had gotten him involved with undercover federal agents who were infiltrating an Aryan nations group. The agents framed up Weaver with a petty firearms offence. When Weaver failed to show up at the court hearing, six US Marshals outfitted in full combat gear, carrying automatic weapons, 
went to the mountain cabin where he lived with his wife and their four children and some dogs. Marshalls spotted Weaver's 14-year-old son Sammy in company with one of the dogs and a friend of Weaver's who was visiting the family. They shot and killed the dog. Sammy fired in their direction without hitting anyone. Then he turned to go back to the cabin. A marshal shot him in the back, killing him. The family friend responded by fatally shooting one of the marshals. That shootout escalated the issue and the FBI was called in and commenced an 11-day siege. An FBI sniper shot Randy Weaver, although not fatally. Shortly afterwards, that same sniper shot and killed Mrs. Weaver, standing in her yard, unarmed, holding her 10-month-old baby daughter. The family friend was also shot. He was hit by the same bullet that had killed Mrs. Weaver. He was badly hurt, but he survived. Captured at last and put on trial, Weaver and his friend were acquitted on all charges except the original failure to appear for the court date that Weaver had been trapped into by the FBI. The Justice Department did their best to cover up the details of the case, scoffing at Weaver and his friend as white supremacist terrorists and so on. However, Wall Street Journal reporter James Bovard got hold of the relevant documents and blew their cover. The government settled with Weaver for $3.1 million. Weaver's friend got $380,000. A senior FBI official was sent to prison for destroying key evidence. The FBI sniper who'd shot Mrs. Weaver, once again standing in her yard, unarmed, holding her 10-month-old baby daughter, that FBI sniper was indicted for manslaughter by a state prosecutor. But the feds got the case dismissed on the grounds that, quote, a federal officer cannot be held on a state criminal charge where the alleged crime arose during the performance of his federal duties, end quote. That sniper never did serve any time, nor pay any penalty. He went on to play a much disputed role in the massacre of the Branch Davidians at Waco, Texas. His present whereabouts are unknown to the internet. Randy Weaver died in May this year at age 74, after some weeks of illness. I don't know the nature of the illness. So, yeah, the FBI, which half of my fellow citizens agree is Joe Biden's personal Gestapo. I'm just going to register my irritation at all the evils of the world being compared always, every time, to Adolf Hitler and his agencies. It lets the communists off way too lightly. That registered 
there need to be some major, serious, wholehearted purges in federal law enforcement. Not just the FBI, but the US Marshal Service too, and the DEA and the ATF. If I were in charge, the reform would be zero-based. Fire the whole lot of them, top to bottom. Stick every one of them with a lifetime ban on federal employment, and then build up from scratch. I would add ICE to that list of agencies, except that, where ICE is concerned, all the efforts of the federal government are bent towards ICE agents doing nothing at all to enforce the people's laws. The top talking point this week has been our President's proposal for some limited forgiveness of federal student loans. What does Radio Derb think of this? What I think is, it gives me the opportunity for a rant about college education in general. Here I go. In the first place, I don't see why student loans can't be entirely a matter for the private sector. If a bright 18-year-old with an excellent high school record wants to pursue higher education, but his parents can't afford the tuition and the boarding fees, why are there not private sector lenders, banks and such, perhaps the colleges themselves? willing to lend to him. He's a good prospect for being able to make full repayment once he starts working. What's it got to do with the federal government? Private sector lending would also supply a useful filter. To set the precise terms of the loan, the lender would want to know how good a prospect the applicant is. A big determinant there would be the subject he intended to major in. Medicine? Engineering? Computer science? Law? Business? Yeah, good prospects. History? English? Philosophy? Mm, well, Grievance studies? Are you kidding? The size of those fees is an issue all by itself. College tuition fees have far, far outpaced ordinary currency inflation in recent decades. The average annual cost of tuition at a public four-year college today is 37 times higher than it was in 1963 when I began my college education. Some of that 37 times is, of course, what I just called ordinary currency inflation. But a whole lot of it isn't. Adjusting for that ordinary currency inflation, average tuition fees today are still eight and a half times what they were in 1963. Eight and a half times... What explains that? Is college education eight and a half times better today than it was 60 years ago? 
From what I have seen and heard, including my own mid-1960s college experience, I very much doubt it. Is it just the market working its magic? Supply and demand. Way more people vying for the same or fewer numbers of college places. That may be some of it. Total college enrolment in 1963 was less than 5 million. Today it's more than 20 million. That's not an 8.5 multiple, though. And the number of college places has surely expanded to meet increased demand. The increased demand, at least, is not hard to understand. We have moved decisively into a post-industrial society that needs a lot more symbol manipulators and a lot fewer factory hands. Symbol manipulation needs to be taught, and that's what colleges do. But again, that's only part of an answer. For one thing, only a fraction of the symbol manipulation fields need four years of classroom study to get you to employment-ready expertise. This used to be widely understood. For example, there used to be people called articled clerks, trainee lawyers, accountants and such, who learned on the job, working for very low wages. I myself made a very good living for 30 years as a computer programmer, the ultimate in symbol manipulation. Yet, I never studied programming in a classroom, other than some brief company training courses, and I have no academic credentials in the field. I picked up programming from books and manuals, and from doing it. There is also a mismatch, quite a severe one, in higher education. You need an above-average IQ to work at symbol manipulation. And by definition, most people don't have one. If we use IQ 110 as a cutoff, only one white American in four makes it, and only one black American in 20. Those are roughly the proportions of people for whom college is from a strictly educational point of view, not a waste of time. The notion that everyone should go to college is one of the dumbest ever to be aired in public, but it has led to a vast increase in college populations, and so in the wealth and importance of colleges. But of course, college is not just about education. We live under a social ethos that declares intelligence testing to be a ploy of Satan. Applying straightforward intelligence or aptitude tests to prospective employees is not altogether illegal. But a great many people believe it is, and even employers who know it isn't are wary of incurring liability in the dark penumbras of employment law. They therefore want job applicants to show some kind of credentials. 
and a college graduation certificate fills the bill. At this point in the argument, someone says, Yeah, but employers also want some evidence of the right personality traits. Conscientiousness, perseverance. Coming successfully through four years of college offers that evidence. Yes, I suppose it does. Personality traits have long since been quantified, though, and they could be tested for at job application time, just like IQ, if our cultural commissars allowed it, which, of course, they won't. So, in addition to higher education, colleges supply an expensive and time-wasting credential that is much in demand, although it really shouldn't be. Hence, all the bogus, lightweight undergraduate courses and the departments of bunkum studies. What should be the role of the federal government in higher education? I can't see that it should have any. So long as the nation's need for graduate-level skills in essential fields like medicine and engineering are being met. Educating a new generation of historians or classicists is very worthwhile for the sustenance of our civilization. But so is the painting of pictures and the writing of novels. Political interference in such areas does more harm than good. There is madness all around us. More than the usual amount, I believe. I keep finding myself thinking of those stories about villages in medieval Europe where suddenly everyone was seized with a dancing frenzy or with the urge to bark like a dog. Is what happened to those villages happening to the world at large? Here's a story from Australia, whose population I used to think of as exceptionally calm, sensible and phlegmatic. At a Tony private school in Melbourne, Australia, a female student in year eight, which I guess means that she's 13 or 14, uh, the new story just says teenager, um, a female student identifies as a cat. This girl is very bright and capable, the school says, but she won't speak during school hours. A source close to the girl's family told the Daily Mail that, quote, no one seems to have a protocol for students identifying as animals. But the approach has been that if it doesn't disrupt the school, everyone is being supportive. It's not just that one case, either. Melbourne is in the extreme south of Australia. At a Tony private school in Brisbane on the east coast further north, it was reported back in March that female students were walking on all fours and cutting holes into their school uniforms for tails because they identify as cats or foxes. 
Nor is it just Australia that's affected. There is a whole subculture of people, mainly youngsters, identifying as animals. They call themselves furries. And the phenomenon is international. A school district in Michigan was recently forced to deny that litter boxes were provided to students who identify as furries after a woman made the claim in a school board meeting. I'll just pause here to note the injustice of this cult calling themselves furries. Not all animals have fur. What about reptiles? Even among higher animals, I mean animals with something like intelligence, the fur isn't universal. Octopuses are as intelligent as any furry vertebrate. I urge listeners to join with me in helping to stamp out furry privilege. OK, back to the main theme. Those medieval villagers who were suddenly seized with uncontrollable dance frenzy or dog barking were, it is generally thought, reacting to something in their food supply. The villain most often fingered here is ergot, a kind of fungus mould that grows on bread and is known to have hallucinogenic properties. All kinds of mass social aberrations, both physical and psychiatric, from plagues to witch hunts, all kinds have been blamed on ergot. We don't any longer have to eat mouldy bread, as our medieval ancestors did, but there are problems with our food supply, as evidenced by the high level of obesity among poor people in the First World. Our civilization is, as has often been noted, the first in history in which poor people are fat and rich people are thin. Could it be that our diet is giving us psychiatric problems along with the merely physical ones? Among all the myriad chemical compounds, natural and additive, that make up our diet, might there be hallucinogens? Perhaps of a slowly cumulative kind? I'd like to believe that well-credentialed researchers in appropriate fields microbiology, organic chemistry, neuroscience and so on I'd like to believe they're studying the relationship between the modern first world diet and the weird irrational hysterias that sweep through our societies from time to time. Phenomena like the 2020 George Floyd frenzy or the fast-rising popularity of gender reassignment by chemical or surgical means. I'd like to believe that, but I doubt such research is actually taking place. When great numbers of us are swept up in these hysterias, to the degree that all respectable organs of education and opinion say that reality is like this, 
and that those who stubbornly persist in believing it's like that are evil people driven by hatred, who should be fired from their jobs, shut out from social media, and have their bank accounts closed? When the psychiatric plague has taken over to that degree... Those well-credentialed researchers are dancing themselves to exhaustion with the rest, or barking like dogs with the rest, or joining in the witch hunts with the rest. Still, I wonder. What Urgot did to those medieval villagers, perhaps some other agent is doing to us, but on a much wider scale. History shows that we live on the edge of madness and that sometimes entire societies dive right in. I know, I know. I think about this stuff too much. I need to calm down, take a break, make myself a sandwich. Here we go. Well, oh, wait. What's this on the bread? Jared Taylor is proprietor of the American Renaissance website. His voice is one of the most eloquent and most consistent of those advocating for the group interests of white Americans. A perfectly reasonable thing to advocate for in a multiracial society. We frequently cross-post Jared's opinion pieces here at vdare.com, always with his permission, of course. I've been a fan of Jared's since reading his book, Paved with Good Intentions, 30 years ago. I've attended many of American Renaissance's annual conventions, and I've had the privilege of speaking at some of them. So it was with much interest that I saw Jared himself is scheduled to speak to a student group at Arizona State University in Tempe next Friday. Title of his talk, If We Do Nothing, A Defense of White Identity Politics. That's the title. I'll just point out, for those not aware of it, that If We Do Nothing is also the title of another of Jared's books, a collection that he published in 2017 of essays from the previous 25 years. Well worth your 20 bucks, and now available as an audiobook too. OK, back to Tempe, Arizona, where Jared is scheduled to speak September 2nd. The thing I'm wondering is, of course, will this actually happen? The anti-white and anarchist mobs are already shrieking and howling on social media. Will Arizona State University authorities buckle under threats of disorder? The way Williams College did when I was scheduled to speak there back in 2016. Free speech is a value I hold in extremely high regard, squealed the college president on that occasion, 
as he bent over and grabbed his ankles for the Antifa hooligans. Or will the visit go ahead, but end prematurely in hysteria, broken windows and the roughing up of female faculty members, as happened when Charles Murray addressed his students at Middlebury College the following year. I await developments with interest. Whatever happens, I can't say that I'm afraid on Jared's behalf. He keeps himself superbly fit, and he is perfectly fearless. This is a seasoned warrior the anti-whites are up against here. I would call out some encouraging words like, Stay the course, Jared. Don't back down. But I know Jared will stay the course, and he won't back down. A hero of our time. Just because we cut and ran from Afghanistan doesn't mean that we've given up pointless wars in the Middle East. How could we? That's not who we are. Hence this headline from the Washington Times, August 23rd. Headline. U.S. airstrikes target militia-controlled areas in East Syria. Now, I'll admit that my brain's powers of attention and retention are not what they used to be. But be honest, please. Do you have any idea what this is all about? Could you explain to an intelligent teenager who these militia are? How they came to control areas in East Syria? And why we sent our planes to bomb them? It must have been real important that we do so. The Washington Times tells us that, quote, The strikes came at the orders of President Joe Biden, end quote. Let me dig a little deeper for you, see if I can figure out what's going on. Quote, The airstrikes targeted the Ayash camp, run by the Fatimiyoun group, made up of Shiite fighters from Afghanistan, end quote. Okay. Shiites I know about. That's the breed of Muslims that run Iran and a good bit of Iraq. I think I knew that there were Shiites in Afghanistan too, but I forget why it matters. Ayash? Fatimiyoun? Sorry, no clue. Further quote from the Washington Times. In a quote, Today's strikes were necessary to protect and defend U.S. personnel. End in a quote. Central Command spokesman Colonel Joe Buccino said in a statement. End quote. Okay, now I'm engaged. Protecting and defending U.S. personnel is definitely something we should be doing. Wait, though, that sounds like a dangerous part of the world. What are our personnel doing there? Further quote. 
The colonel added the attack was in response to an August 15th attack targeting U.S. forces. That attack saw drones allegedly launched by Iranian-backed militias target the Al-Tanf garrison used by American forces. End quote. Uh-huh. Used by American forces. Used for what? Further quote. Deir Zor is a strategic province that borders Iraq and contains oil fields. Iran-backed militia groups and Syrian forces control the area and have often been the target of Israeli warplanes in previous strikes. End quote. Now I've totally lost the thread again. This place borders Iraq? So what? It contains oil fields? Why do we care about that? Oil is bad, isn't it? It's fossil fuel. It causes global warming. We've shut down our own pipelines, we've stopped prospecting, and we've banned fracking. Shouldn't we just bomb the bejesus out of... what's the place called? Deir is Zor. Shouldn't we just bomb them to hell so they can't produce any more of the filthy stuff? Wouldn't that be a net plus for the climate? And then, Iranian-backed militia groups and Syrian forces. Oh, right. There's a civil war in Syria. Been going on for years. Which side are we on, though? I forget. And why are we on any side? What's Syria to us? The place is just another third-world dunghole. Why are we spending money dropping bombs there? Oh, and those militia groups and Syrians have often been the target of Israeli warplanes in previous strikes. Well, it's Israel's neighbourhood, so I guess they know what they're doing. My strong impression is that the Israelis can take good care of themselves. If something in Syria needs bombing, they can bomb it, as apparently they did in those previous strikes. So again, what are we doing there? What we are doing is, of course, we are continuing to pursue the fantasy of late 2001. The fantasy that, by a mixture of force, example, careful stewardship and huge cash subsidies, we could turn corrupt tribal theocracies into modern nations governed by mass consent and practising honest commerce. We couldn't, of course. The force that we applied just created new or enlarged counterforce, like those militias and the Taliban who chased us out of Afghanistan. The example fell on stony ground. These places need a few centuries of constitutional development before they can be little Denmarks. The stewards 
pocketed our cash subsidies and withdrew two luxury apartments in Dubai with gold-plated bathroom fixtures. It was all an utter failure. Twenty-one years of failure. It's hard to let go of fantasies, though, and the military-industrial complex needs feeding. In that long, cold war, we somehow lost the habit of minding our own business. How will it all end? The way it always ends for tired, overstretched empires living out fantasies of global supremacy. There will be a military debacle. Pray God, only a small one. Like Suez or Dien Thu. Or, at worst, a short and localised one, like the Russo-Japanese War. When will this happen? Could be next week. Could be ten years from now. The firmest, I will say, is... If it hasn't happened by this date in 2035, I shall be very surprised. Well, if I'm around to be surprised. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. Headline of the week. Fall of... Troy was inevitable, say opposition party leaders. That's the headline. I found myself in full agreement with those opposition party leaders, whoever they were. Yes, once Odysseus got that wooden horse inside the gates and Cassandra had been shouted down and Laocoon disposed of, the fall of Troy was inevitable. What was that doing as a newspaper headline, though? Wasn't it kind of old news? Like 3,000 years old? I buckled down to it and read the accompanying story. Ah, this is not Troy the city. This is a guy named Robert Troy a minister in the government of the Irish Republic. Mr Troy had been caught out making some iffy statements about his property interests, and he handed in his resignation. The opposition parties were, of course, delighted. The leader of the Labour Party, a bold colleen named Ivana Basic, wanted to drag Mr Troy's corpse behind her chariot around the walls of Dublin, but fortunately her colleagues dissuaded her. Item. Some light humour here. A dad joke, in fact. I'm plagiarising this from Twitter, August 25th. We are in a diner. A female customer is sitting there, obviously just arrived. A pretty young waitress has come over to her. Customer. Can I ask you about the menu, please? Waitress. I'm afraid not. The men I please is none of your business. Ooh.
All right, it's a terrible joke. Dad jokes are supposed to be terrible. I'm going to double down here. That joke reminded me of one that was current in Hong Kong when I lived there fifty years ago. I see that I've told it before, but that was twenty years ago and on a different website. So the statute of internet joke limitations applies. A young Chinese man is getting ready to go and study in America. The day before he leaves. His father takes him aside and warns him, "Son, you must be very careful in America. American women are very bold. They will try to seduce you. You must always be on your guard." Son, yes, father. On his first day in America, the boy goes into a diner. A pretty young waitress comes over. I'll have the special, please," says the young man. "Tea or coffee?" asks the waitress. "Tea, please." Waitress. "Yes, sir, with pleasure." Young man. "No, no, no, no pleasure." <laughs> Item. Just one more on the humour beat. This one, I'm afraid, slightly off colour. This outbreak of monkeypox is causing a lot of embarrassment to the mainstream media. The disease is spread almost entirely by homosexual buggery, but of course it is shamefully homophobic to say that out loud or to write it in plain print. Furthermore, the Monkey part of monkeypox might be taken by sensitive souls as a very disrespectful allusion to black Americans. As a result of these unfortunate connotations, naughty people have been suggesting alternative names for the disease. These naughty people have been especially prominent in. Steve Saylor's comment threads. One of them has offered Pride Pox as an alternative name, which should mollify the shirtlifting community. And now I have just noticed another one of Steve's commenters attempting something similar on behalf of our black, indigenous, and people of color, which is to say, bipoc. Demographic. Bipox. <laughs> That's all I have, ladies and gents. Thank you for your time and attention, your comments and requests, and your kind donations. I shall just note in passing that Tuesday this week also marked an anniversary. Eighty years since the beginning of the German assault on Stalingrad. That was to become the most ferocious battle of modern times. Five months of total urban war, with hundreds of thousands of dead, both military and civilian. May we be spared such horrors in our own time. 
I promised you more tuba music at sign-out, so here it is. This is from Johann Sebastian Bach's Art of the Fugue. Fugue number five, played here by the Canadian Brass Quintet. Thanks to the friend who suggested this. In this case, I do know the name of the tubist. He is Charles Dallenbach. The Canadian Brass website tells us that, quote, Chuck and his gold-plated and carbon-fibre tuba are the bedrock of the massive Canadian brass repertoire from baroque to jazz, end quote. Wikipedia tells us that he is, quote, the most recorded tuba performer in history, end quote. Hey, you wanted tuba? I've given you tuba. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. <laughs>